Good morning. How is everyone today? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's raining outside, but it is, it is nice in here. Amen? We can come together and praise the Lord together. As we uh, begin our message today, I'd like to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11 today. As we're talking about the 11th hour of study in the, the book of Revelation for those who are just joining us, a quick recap of what we've been through so far. In chapter 1, we saw the vision of the Son of Man, and uh, we saw Jesus appear to John um, while he's exiled on the Isle of uh, Patmos. And we see this vision of, of Jesus with uh, seven lampstands and seven stars, which become the angels to the churches. And they're, they're, they represent seven letters to the seven churches. We've already talked about the, the letter to the church of Ephesus, and this week we're going to look at the second of those seven letters. So let's begin by reading it, starting in verse 8. We'll read uh, together. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which, are, which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look into this text today, I pray that it would be more than just a text to us, but that we would understand that this was a letter that you wrote to the churches. This is a letter from the throne room of, of you to us. And Lord, I pray that it would have the impact that you intended it to have on us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If we remember uh, from, the, from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how each of these letters actually follows the same six-step format. It begins with a destination, which church, and then a description of Jesus, followed by a description of the church, then the, some directives for us, and then ends with the discernment of the reader and depiction of the consequences for the ones who overcome. So let's look at, at this second one and, and see how it fits into that. And let's begin with the destination. Look at verse 8, the first half. says, To the angel... Of the church of Smyrna, right. So Smyrna is a city, it's about 40 miles northwest of Ephesus. It's also a coastal city uh, there in what we would consider Asia Minor. Um, uh, it's, it's a seaport as well, a, a pretty good sized city there. Now Smyrna is not mentioned in multiple places in scripture like, the, like Ephesus was. We find Ephesus written multiple times in the book of Acts. We have a, a, a letter written to the church in Ephesus uh, by Paul as well. We don't have as much of that, but what we do know about Smyrna is, first of all, that the word Smyrna means bitter. It means bitter, and it's named after a fragrance that is bitter before it is crushed, and then once it's crushed, it is very sweet-smelling. I think that's interesting because it's actually, a, a, in fact, the Hebrew word for it is mur, where we get the word myrrh, like the presents that were given to Jesus. The, when, the, when you look at this fragrance that it's named after, that it's bitter at the beginning and, and smells better at the, at, when, once it's crushed, and it's used usually for embalming the dead. And so that's an interesting thing when you look in light of what, of what these verses and the message to this church has to do. 
Um, in fact, it's interesting too that if you look at some extra biblical material about Smyrna from that era, it is known as a city that died and came back to life. That's interesting to me. It's, a, it's known as a city that died and came back to life. They suffered a horrible earthquake and they decided to rebuild. And when they rebuilt, they rebuilt bigger and better. And, uh, and you, you see that kind of theme all throughout this, this letter. Well, let's take a look at uh, the second half of the, of the verse there. Verse 8 it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, he who was dead and came to life. This is the description that we have of Jesus. Right? As all of these letters, Jesus begins by giving uh, a description of himself, the one who is writing the letters. And he says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So there's two descriptions that we find in here of Jesus Christ. The first one is that he's called the first and the last. Again, this is a reference to the vision of the Son of Man. Because remember twice, in the vision of the Son of Man, what was Jesus called? The first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. So the emphasis here is on his eternality, right? He was the first. He was the last. He, he's the Alpha. He is the Omega. Um, he, there is, in fact, in fact, think about this for a moment. There has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, when Jesus did not or will not exist. Let that sink in for a second. How many, your minds just blow when you think about that, right? I mean, if for me, I can understand the future in a sense because I have known things that have begun that haven't ended, right? Like my own life, for example, it began and it hasn't ended. So the idea of just trying to mentally even capture the idea that of something continuing to exist, okay, that's a stretch because eternity is beyond my mind, but I can kind of grasp it. But to think backwards in time, to think that there was never a time in eternity past where Jesus didn't already exist, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. Anyone else with me? That, that idea that Jesus is eternal in both directions. Uh, I believe, too, that this reference to the first and last is also a clue for us uh, in our interpretation of the book of Revelation. Because... It reminds us that we can't think about the end without thinking about the beginning and seeing the entire picture. And so as we start talking about the end of times, we have to zoom out a little bit and remember some of the things at the beginning. In fact, we're going to find a lot of, especially as we get to the near, nearing the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, there's a lot of Genesis talk in there. There's a lot of connections to Genesis. And so with that in mind, I think... Uh, it, it doesn't come as a surprise to us when we see what the second description was. And the second description of Jesus is that he was dead and that he came to life. We ought not let something lose its awe because we hear it multiple times, right? I mean, how many times have we heard that Jesus died and came to life? I hope you hear it at least once every Sunday, right? That's a very important thing. But to actually stop and let, let this sink in, that Jesus was dead and then he came to life. You see, that's an important thing because Jesus is the answer to a problem that has been plaguing mankind from the beginning. Isn't that true? He is the answer to the problem that has been plaguing us from the beginning. And, and let's take a, a quick run through the early chapters of Genesis here from and in the beginning when God created uh, created us where did he put us he put us in a special place 
Not, not you and me specifically, but mankind. He put us in a special place called the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, the word Eden means delights. We have this beautiful place where there's a relationship, uninhibited relationship between God and man in the, in the Garden of Eden. And they had access to a special tree. Remember what that tree was called? The tree of life. When Adam and Eve were created, they were immortal by God's design. Death was not a part of their, their natural consequence of life. It's, they, they were born immortal and they had access to the tree of life. And so in theory, they could have lived forever from that point in this garden of delights, right? Skip to Genesis chapter 3, right? And we have the fall. We have the sin and the curse. Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the forbidden fruit. There was another tree in the Garden of Eden, and God said, you cannot eat of this tree. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And up to that point, they just had the knowledge of good. But by implication, by disobeying God, they, if they partook of that fruit, they would now have knowledge of evil as well. And because of that, God said that in the day that you eat of it, you would surely die. And the day that they ate of it, they lost their immortality and became mortals. And from that point, they began to die. This has been a problem since the first two human beings of human history. Skip had two more chapters, Genesis chapter 5. And what we find, we find this genealogy uh, that, that we find... I don't, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I want you to at least listen. I'm going to, to look at Genesis chapter 5, and I'm going to read uh, a couple of things, starting in verse 3, if you are following along. It says, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. What happened to Adam? He died. Now, 900 years seems like a lot, right? Anyone here know someone that's 900 years old or more, right? But 900 years compared to an eternity, that, that's a very small amount. In fact, we read in uh, verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and begat Enosh. After he begat Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and, the, um, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. In fact, you find this verse 14. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 24 uh, is the only exception, and we'll talk about that later, with Enoch. Verse 27, and he died. Verse 31, and he died. Do you, do you, do you recognize the little pattern of what's going on here? That from the day that sin entered in the world, death became a plague on all mankind. Death became a plague on all mankind. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 5 when he said, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Who's that man? It's Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all 
sinned. It goes on to say, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. What the two key words here? Death reigned. Death reigned. No one could conquer it. It ruled. Everyone died. You can, I've heard people say, the only, you know, the only things are, that are sure in life are what? Death and taxes. I don't know about taxes for sure. I mean, I'm sure there are people who, who uh, evade taxes. But I'll tell you what, you're not going to escape death. Right? It's not going to happen. And in fact, if you were to think about it, if you were to go to the doctor and, and because you weren't feeling well and you thought you just needed some medicine, what are the worst words that you can imagine him saying? It usually starts with, this isn't, easy, this isn't going to be easy for you to hear, but. Right? And, and imagine just the, the sinking feeling of that, you know, of, of I, I have some bad news for you. You're sick and it's terminal. Right? But guess what? All of us are sick. And it's terminal. We're all dying. No one escapes it. No one conquers it. You can't outrun it. You've already been contracted by this plague. And it's lethal. 100% effective. And you have it. The worst news that you can give someone, guess what? It's true for all of us. Let that sink in for a moment. You're going to die because of it. Why? Because death reigns. That's the nature of it. What we learned today, with one exception. One exception. What, was it, what is that? Jesus was dead, and he came to life. If that doesn't give, send us a, a, a chill up your spine, I don't know what will. The fact that he was dead and he came to life. He conquered it. Now we sure we read about Enoch and, and he didn't conquer death. He escaped it, right? Elijah, a little bit later we'll read about that. Uh, um, he, he escaped it, but every, no one has ever conquered death until Jesus Christ. He died, he was dead, and he came back to life. I think that Jesus describes himself in this way, in this passage, on purpose, because of of what he's about to say to the church in Smyrna. So now let's look at the description of the church in verse 9. So that's our, hang on to that description of Jesus for a moment, and we'll connect it later. But look at the description of the church in verse 9. He says, like he does in all of his other letters, he begins with, I know your works. Nothing escapes the eyes of Christ. He knows your works. But what does he say? I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, that's quite a... That's, that's harsh words, right? A synagogue of Satan. And so what does he say? There's really two things that he knows about the church. Two things that he focuses on. Number one is the idea of tribulation, right? The idea of tribulation or persecution. Persecution by whom? Actually, if you look at history, they're being persecuted by two sets of people. They were being persecuted by the Romans... Right? The Romans, because they didn't like anyone who, was, uh, who, who followed a religion other than the, their own religion. So there was persecution simply because they, uh, they, of the fact that they were religious. And some religious groups were more persecuted than others. Right? 
And so they were persecuted by the Romans, but they were also persecuted by Jews. In fact, you can read extra-biblical material um, about this, and you find that there was a group of Jews that, that pressed charges. There were six charges against Christians in Smyrna, for which the, the Christians in Smyrna were persecuted in multiple ways. And it's interesting to me that, that we have a description of that right here in verse 9 when he says that those who say they are Jews and are not... But are, of a, or but are a synagogue of Satan. There are those who claim to be the Jews, but he's saying they weren't real Jews. A real Jew is one who, who, who understands who Jesus is, right? And so a real Jew isn't someone who's just a Jew by birth, uh, Galatians tells us, but a, a real Jew is one who understands and has that relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, you've heard of fake news, right? This is fake Jews, right? And so you've got fake Jews out there, and, and fake Jews are actually giving fake news because they're pressing all these false charges. Among those six charges, uh, one of them uh, was political disloyalty to Rome. Why? Because the message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when, they press, when, they're talk, when they say that there's a kingdom of heaven, hey, they're, they're talking about disloyalty to Rome because you're put, pitting one kingdom against another. Is that really what Jesus taught? Not at all. This is fake news. Right? That's not what Jesus taught. In fact, what Jesus actually taught was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What Jesus actually taught is that you have to respect the governments that God puts in place, even when they're not godly, right? But they pushed something that's true. The other one actually it cracks me up even more. One of, the, one of the charges was cannibalism. As Christians, how many of you have been involved in cannibalism? Zero. That's what I thought, Right? Now, he said, how do they press cannibalism? Why? Because they talk about communion. What is communion? You take the bread. What do you say? This is my body, which is broken for you. Oh, then they're eating the body of Christ. That's cannibalism. So you get this idea how, how far these Jews were willing to, to, to push their lies so that the Christians would be persecuted. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And I think it's interesting, too, to, uh, to see that their tactic was to hit them financially. Later we'll see that their, their tactic was also to use imprisonment. But here we see that their, tac- their tactic was to hit them financially because the second thing that brought he- up here is their poverty. He brings up their poverty. saying Poverty just means the lack of funds for your own sustenance. That's what poverty is. And so uh, he's saying that somehow because of this persecution, they were unable to have money to, to purchase the things that they needed for, for their own sustenance. A couple of interesting thoughts when I think about that. Number one, this is the same strategy that we're going to read about later on in the book of Revelation. When there are people who will not receive the mark of the beast, and because of that, they will be unable to purchase food. So this is like a small sense of what we're going to see in the end. All of these are little types of what's going to happen in the end, right? I think the second interesting thing is to see that we're already seeing that, that tactic tested even in our own country. Follow me for a second here. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing that tactic tested. I mean, within the last year or so, we've, we've heard of the story of the Christian photographer, the Christian baker, and the t-shirt maker. And no, I'm not a poet. Sorry. But, um, but we've had these stories of people who take a stand in their faith, and because of their Christian faith, where are they getting attacked? Financially. And so you have a, a situation with a Christian baker who, 
who, because he, he, it's his art form and he wants to, and he puts his heart and soul into his art, he doesn't want to make a cake that, that celebrates a type of marriage that he doesn't believe is biblical or fits the biblical definition of marriage. You, you, he'll make cakes for anyone, but he won't make a cake that expresses a sentiment that goes against his own faith. Or the, the, the photographer, same, same thing. Or the t-shirt maker. I f found it interesting that the t-shirt maker um, um, rejected designs that even said that uh, a marriage is one man and one woman. Why? Because even though he agreed with the message, he felt it was divisive and he didn't want to make anything divisive. But then when, the, when someone wanted to make a shirt that said the opposite, they sued him. And even winning that case, he lost everything. Lost everything. Why? Because he lost all of the funds that, that, that it takes. And I think we're seeing that tested out even in our own in our own culture somewhat. I don't know how far we are from the end days yet, but I'll tell you what, there are hints that it could be sooner than we think. We don't know. But what I find interesting here too, in that same verse, he says that, that they were suffering persecution and poverty, but what does he say in the parentheses? But you are rich. And there's a little reminder here that, that we're looking at things completely different. In fact, if you contrast this to, to, the, to the persecutors, we we're talking about two kinds of wealth here. We have material wealth in which the Christians in Smyrna were poor. But then there's a, there are spiritual, there's a spiritual wealth, and of that, they were rich. They were rich. And so if you contrast to the, to, to the ones who were persecuting them, those Jews thought that they were rich spiritually, but they were poor spiritually. And they were richer in material wealth. But that's the description. This is the description of the church that we find in Smyrna. One thing I think is cool is what we don't find in the description in Smyrna. Because remember what we read in Ephesus? All of these great things about the church of Ephesus, but he said, but there's one thing you're doing wrong. You don't find that in Smyrna. You find a healthy church because Jesus doesn't have one negative thing to say about the church in Smyrna. How would you like to be that church when we get to, to heaven someday? To be a church where God says, oh, you know, HBC, Kentwood, yeah, you guys did exactly what I wanted you to do. I don't care what persecution we have to go through. I want to hear those words that day, don't you? I look forward to that. That's what we, I think is cool. So now we come to the directives in verse 10. We find, what does God say for them to do under these circumstances, under what the, with the circumstances, what they're going through? What does Jesus want them to do? Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. There we go. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Wow. Two directives that he gives in here. There are two things that he says. Number one, be fearless in suffering. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. To be fearless in suffering. There's a couple things I want to point out to this. Um, first of all, notice in that verse that we do not always get to avoid suffering. Notice that? He doesn't say, do not fear, you will not suffer. I mean, that would be, those would be comforting words, right? 
Don't, don't worry, you will not suffer. That's not what we read. We read, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. We do not always get to avoid suffering. In fact, for living for Christ, chances are we will suffer for that. The second thing that we notice here, too, is that, that the suffering is only temporary. That suffering is only temporary. It's not intended to be for, forever. In fact, look back at verse 10. It says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, right? That you may be tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, what does he mean by this? Ten, this idea of 10 days. Uh, what we find consistent through Scripture is that 10 days is the number of testing. Right? We, we find that consistently throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. For example, um, Nabal's heart was tested for 10 days um, to see if he would soften his heart. And for Samuel 25, or uh, in, in uh, Jeremiah 42, the, there was 10 days of testing for Jeremiah as he waited for the Lord to respond to his request. Or as we just studied in the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, and his friends were tested for 10 days to see if they would be healthier after not eating the, king, the king's meat. Every time you find 10 days together in Scripture... It's in a sense of testing, and so it makes sense that we, hear, we see it here in the same context with the very word test, right? There's this idea of 10 days. So do I believe that it means 10 literal days? I'll leave a maybe for that, but I'll tell you my opinion that I think what he's saying in context here is that there's always a short period of time for the testing, but once that test is done, you're done. You pass the test, right? And... and and so I think the point of this, the idea is that the suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is eternal, but the testing is only temporary, and, and you'll get through that point of testing. Does that make sense? The, the second directive that we find in the same verse here, um, it, it found in the second half of the verse, we read this, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the second uh, the second directive that we find in here is to be faithful until death. It should be expected that persecution of the church will get bad and that it will get so bad that it could cost you your life. Think about it. Why do you think Jesus, when people were wanting to get saved, why do you think Jesus said, no, you need to count the cost before you do this. Why do you think Jesus taught that if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it? You've got to be willing to sacrifice it. Why do you think Jesus turned away people who said, oh, I want to get saved, but I'm not ready to, 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 to reject my own life, and he said, you're in the wrong religion. Why? Because true Christianity, you're going you're gonna to suffer. In fact, according to this, the message that he's saying is, you're going to suffer so bad that for many of you, you're going to lose your life. How depressing, right? Wrong. Why? Because the second half of what he said, because I will give you the crown of life. That's what makes all the difference. That's why we can be fearless in our suffering. That's why we can be faithful even to the point of death. This is what James was talking about in James 1 when he said, Blessed is the man, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, which is this is the, uh, the same word that's used to approve of testing, 
he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We, this is the, that crown of life. Guess what? We lost access to the tree of life back in Genesis 3. And Jesus is saying we'll have access to the crown of life in the end. If we endure this temptation. If we, we are faithful even to the point of death. We can gain access to the crown of life. So what does it mean to be faithful to the point of death? It means that we endure that temptation to despair. And we ought not despair because we know that God is going to give us the crown of life. I said to hang on to the description of Jesus for a Christ, uh, the, the description of Jesus for a moment. Let's bring that back out for a moment. That thinking, thinking through, Jesus was dead and came to life. Why do you think he describes himself that way? Because what he was about to promise us. Jesus died. No mistaking. I, you hear of people who have died and come back to life, right? You know, but usually, that's just because there's a medical definition of death that, you know, in fact, technically, we die and come back to life by a medical definition every time we hiccup, right? Have you ever heard that? So by, by medical definitions, for a split second, we're dead. I'm talking about dead in the grave for three days. I mean, dead, dead. And he came back to life. And now he's the one who's telling us you may die, but you'll come back to life. And I'm going to give you the crown of life. He is the only one who can make that promise and have it carry any weight. Amen? He's the only one. Well, in typical fashion, what we find too is following the pattern of all the seven letters, Jesus finishes the, the letter with a discernment of the reader and a depiction of the consequences. So let's look at uh, verse 11. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, the, basically what he's saying there is take this information, move it from your head to your heart now. It's like, you, you've heard it, move it from your head to your heart. If you've got an ear to hear this, listen to it, meditate on this. I, one of my Hebrew professors used to always say, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Right? You know, make it become a part of you. And by the way, just for the, for the record, I am not endorsing smoking. All right, just avoid a few emails um, but we have to we have to think about this if you've got an ear to hear listen to this listen up if you've been falling asleep I, you know, I, I don't know how late you were up last night wake up and listen to this he's saying if you have an ear to hear listen and that, so there's the discernment of the reader you have to show discernment and make sure you understand this and then he finishes with the depiction of the consequences when he says this he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, some of you, if you've studied the book of Revelation, already feel that sense of comfort, like, oh, that's an awesome promise. Some of you might be saying, what on earth is the second death? Right? What's the second death? Well, let's read about it. You can keep your finger in, in uh, Revelation 2, but let's turn to the second to last chapter of the scriptures here, the Revelation chapter 20, and hear about the second death. This is John speaking of his, of his revelation. He says this, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, talking about God the Father, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. No escaping this. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. That in itself is amazing. The dead are now standing before God, 
all of them. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the death who were, uh, who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found right in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If this doesn't inspire a sense of terror in your heart, then you need to read it again. This idea of the second death where everyone who has ever lived is being judged by a God who sees everything. They're going to try and escape and there's no escape. There's no excuses. There's no way, there's, there's no way to defend yourself. God will judge according to every sin. And if your name is not written in that book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire and that's called the second death. Powerful, isn't it? Let's take it. Let's go back and look at that promise, though. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I don't know about you, but the first death just doesn't scare me that much anymore. Because I'm going to be good at that second death. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be sitting pretty at the second death. A couple things to note. First of all, in Greek, this is a double negative. Yes, it's allowed in, in Greek to have a double negative for emphasis. So he's saying they will not never be hurt by the second death. Translate that into proper English, we would say that they would not ever be hurt. No, not ever is the idea. There's an emphasis. They will not be hurting when it comes to the second death. Second thing is this is a, this is a light token. Now, for those who, don't, who aren't grammar experts, right, might not know what a litote is, but a litote is a figure of speech in which the writer expresses an, aff- an affirmation, of, uh, an affirmative idea by negating the opposite, right? Uh, so you, you want to say something, affirm a positive statement, and you, so you negate the opposite of it. So for example, if a teacher comes in and the, and the students are misbehaving, and, he, and the teacher wants to say that he's annoyed, what might he say? He might say... I am not amused, right? He's really negating the opposite. I am not amused, which means I am annoyed, right? Or uh, uh, another example would be uh, if, if a student were to say, boy, that, that test was no cakewalk. What is he really saying? He's not just saying a negative thing about a negative thing. He's saying that test was difficult, right? Um, I remember hearing a parent once Tell their, tell their son, if you can make it through law school, you won't be hurting for money. Now, they're not just saying that you will not be hurting. What are they really saying? You're going to have a lot. Right? That's what a light tote does, and, and that's what he's saying here. When he says, in, in this context, you shall not be hurt. What he's saying, you, you won't be hurting when it comes to the second death. No, you're going to be sitting just, you're going to be sitting pretty when it comes to to that second death. You're going to be just fine. What he means by that is beyond just fine. You're going to be doing great. And that's what he's saying here. What a great promise. So he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. An amazing thought. You know, there are a lot of churches 
that will try to convince you that the Christian life is worth it. And that's why you should accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because, because the moment you accept Jesus Christ into your, into your heart, you're going to be wealthy, healthy, and happy. The, an, the answer to that is not, not true. That's, that's fake news. right? The truth is, you may be persecuted. Uh, you may be poor. Even though you'll be spiritually rich in other ways. You may even be persecuted to the point of death. That's why Jesus says you've got to count the cost before you think, even think about becoming a Christian. And you know what? So far, that's all bad news. But the good news is so good, it overshadows any of that. And the good news is that when it comes to that second death, we won't be hurting. We won't be hurting. The, the directives for us today are very simple, and these are our applications. Be fearless in suffering and be faithful even to the point of death. And we can do that because of the promise that we have of eternal life. Amen? For the invitation, I just want to say there's really two responses that I would expect and they, they couldn't be more categorically opposite. For some of you, you should be afraid. Some of you are not ready for the second death. In a, in a group this size, the, statistically speaking, the chance that every person in this room uh, is ready for the second death, it's, it's, it's just not. That's not the case. There are people in this room right now that are not ready for that second death, and you should be afraid. And that fear should cause you to respond. There are others in here who, who uh, you know for sure, and, and you're without a, a shadow of a doubt, you know you're on your way to heaven, and today is a reminder of that, and so it should cause you to be fearless and faithful, and just to go out into the world, and, and when you suffer persecution for being Christian, just take it, because you know the, 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 first, the first death is really not that big of a deal. Even if the first death overtakes me, I've got the second death, and I don't have to worry about that, right? And so, so the, 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 the response depends on how ready you are for that day. And so I want to give an opportunity for either one of you to respond. If you are not sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you were to die today, that you would be ready because once, once, once you die, there's no changing your, your, your case on the day of the second death. If you're not ready for the second death right now, then I'm going to invite you to come forward and come talk to me. Or you can go to the back. We'll have some, um, um, some men and women ready to meet you back there. And they can show you from God's word how you can know for sure that you're ready for that day. Amen? If, if you know for sure... And you just want to say to the Lord, all right, Lord, I'm willing to go through whatever persecution you put me through. And, and, I, and I know that, and, and you just want to talk with the Lord and get that right, then come forward. Right? Just come and have that prayer. We won't bother you. We'll let you, we'll leave you alone in your conversation with God. But as we sing in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come forward as well. And what you're saying by coming forward is you're simply saying, Lord, I'm with you. And I know that you're with me. And I'm willing to go through any persecution with you because of the promise that you've made. And I believe in that promise. And that's going to drive me to be fearless and faithful in living out my Christian life. If that's your commitment today, then I ask you to come forward as well.
Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. Lord, what a comfort it is to know that we can be ready for that day. Lord, there might be some in here that they're not ready for that day, and so, Lord, I pray that you would bring them into the fold today. That any fear that they have of what people might think of them for making that decision or whatever fears might be keeping them from making that decision that they would recognize that those, th- those fears are infin- infinitely smaller than the fear of eternity without you. That they would come forward or go back and talk to someone in the back and know for sure that their eternal destiny has been changed today. Lord, I pray, too, that you work in the hearts of believers in this room right now. That they would come forward and just make that declaration that they're going to be fearless in their Christian walk and they're going to be faithful even to the point of death. Never renouncing the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be true of us as a church, Lord. That we stand before you. We also would have no negative things that you would have to say against, against this church. Pray this in Christ's name.